You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Good, everybody. Welcome to the SB Nation NFL Show Super Bowl Digital Row. I am Rob Stats Carrera, and boy, do we have a great show lined up for you today. And not just today, all next week, we are going to be bringing you the absolute best coverage of Super Bowl 56 that you will find anywhere. We are going to talk with people on the ground in LA covering these teams every day and we're still going to bring you all the long-form shows you've come to love here on the SP Nation NFL show. And oh, by the way, you are going to hear from guests like Russell Wilson, Travis Kelsey, Adrian Peterson, Saquon Barkley, Austin Eckler, Deion Sanders, and that's not even the whole list. So now is the perfect time. Smash that subscribe button so you do not miss an episode. On today's show, we're going to bring you three guests that are a perfect kickoff to what is going to be quite the week here at SP Nation. I had the chance to to catch up with Mark Schlereth at the Fox Sports. RJ Ochoa talked to Mark Sanchez, also of Fox Sports. And I talked with Pro Football Talk's Mike Florio to give you the perfect breakdown of the story that is dominating the NFL landscape right now, the Brian Flores lawsuit. So let's start off the show with Mark Sanchez of Fox Sports, who talked with RJ Ochoa earlier this week. Joining us now on behalf of Papa John's is Fox NFL analyst Mark Sanchez. Mark has teamed up with Papa John's to celebrate its new New York-style pizza and fans' unique pizza rituals with a giveaway of the best prize in pizza. Through February 16th, fans can share their pizza-eating style on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag what's your style, hashtag sweepstakes for a chance to win free pizza for a year. Mark, thanks for joining us on the SB Nation NFL show. Have you ever had pizza for a year as your diet? <laughs> no, but I'm about to. I'm trying to win this competition, baby. The style that you eat your pizza. Obviously, you're a you know, California guy, New York guy. I imagine you have uh, stoked some flames with this. Um, do, do people really have a lot of thoughts and opinions on how you eat your pizza? Well, I think it's important. Everybody's got their you know, fan allegiance and everybody's got their allegiance to pizza. And with the Super Bowl being the number one day to order pizza of the year, this is the perfect storm for, for figuring out what your style is if you don't have it already. But I'm a New York style guy, thin crust, big slice, fold it in half, dip it in the garlic sauce, sausage, pepperoni. I'm in with whatever or a combo. But, um, you know, I really have an issue with people who use the fork and knife that I can't get down with. Uh, you know, I'll do that if it's if I'm at a restaurant and I've got like somewhere to be. You know, no, what I mean? like, no. I, if, if I've drawn Mark, a line in the sand, my heels are dug in. I cannot I cannot relent. You know, Mark, we uh, we differ there, but I, I think we uh, we are probably aligned on some other things. Uh, for what is worth, Papa John's <laughs> did ask more than 4000 American football fans in top football cities across the country how they prefer their pizza. And they found that they do prefer New York style pizza over any other city specific pizza style. So uh, there you go. Mark, it, it is a Super Bowl in Los Angeles. You're an L.A. guy, obviously USC legend. Uh, is it cool? This has kind of been in the process and the buildup for, uh, I would say, five years, but maybe longer than that, as, as the NFL has made its way back out to the West Coast. Is this everything that you kind of dreamed it would be? You obviously have a lot of experience with high quality games uh, in that particular place. Well, it's, it's interesting. And, and um, now that you bring it up, I mean, you got to understand people my age. So I'm 35, but right around my age range, there hasn't been a team in L.A. for a long time. And I, I benefited from that because I went to USC at a time when the program was great. We were on top and we were like an NFL franchise for all intents and purposes. And we were a big draw and a big attraction in Los Angeles. But you have to remember, you got the Lakers, you got the Clippers, you got the Kings, you got the Dodgers, you got uh, the Sparks, you know, women's sports, you got it all. So plus the beach, mountain, deserts, all right here, a lot of other attractions. I'm just, I'm thankful that football is back in L.A., uh, with the Chargers and Rams. I'm thankful that we got a hometown team in a hometown Super Bowl, and that makes two years in a row with Tampa last year. That's impressive. 
first time, you know, second time really in NFL history, that's huge. But it, it took a little while to get going because, because there's so, so many other attractions and so many other draws for people's attention. So um, it, it's, I, I think SoFi is going to be one of those iconic places like the Rose Bowl, like the Coliseum. It's just going to take a little time, and, and this is a great first step. You mentioned, obviously, back-to-back years that the home team, uh, I know the Rams are technically the visiting team, but it has hosted the Super Bowl. If not for the delay that you kind of talked about, that doesn't happen because SoFi was originally set to host the Super Bowl last year, and then right. they swapped with Tampa. So if not for that, maybe you know maybe the Bucks play there last year, the Rams are in Tampa right. this year. So fate can be a funny thing. Uh, fate has smiled, obviously, on the Rams and the Bengals. Your thoughts on the two teams that will be playing on Super Bowl Sunday? Well, I just love where both of these teams are at. Let's start with the Bengals. They're the consummate underdog, you know, and and everybody doubts them. Everybody second guesses them. But I'll tell you what, that quarterback they got, Joe Burrow, that dude doesn't flinch. Coming off an ACL injury, taking nine sacks in a divisional game after winning a thriller, uh, you know, at home against uh, the Raiders the week before. I mean, the guy just stands in the pocket, takes a beating, delivers the football accurately, outduels Patrick Mahomes in an AFC championship game. I mean, this guy's ex- ascending at this incredible rate. Um, you know, if he goes in and wins this thing, that that might be the best first couple of years of a quarterback we've seen because he's doing a lot. It's not like, you know, when I came in my first year and we had an incredible rushing attack, we had, you know, an incredible defense and special teams, and I had to get some timely completions. This dude's throwing for 300-plus every week, putting the ball up in the air 40-plus times, I mean, he's doing it for this team, and he's doing it with a great supporting cast, but a young supporting cast. So this team's going to be around for a while. Now you look at the other squad, and it's all experience. Other than, you know, being in these big playoff games, they got a ton of experience just on their roster. Guys from different parts of the league, former Super Bowl champs, a guy like Matt Stafford at the helm who's been through the fire in Detroit, was refined by that, and now is realizing – God, I don't have to do it all. I can delegate some of this responsibility to the best receiver in football and Cooper Cup. We'll see how Higby is this week, if he's going to give it a go. But that's a big loss for him if he's not there. And remember, Odell Beckham, the teams that were in on his sweepstakes, right? The Odell Beckham sweepstakes were the Packers, the Bucks, and the Rams. If you don't think those other two teams wish they had him at the end of the year, and when he came to L.A., he was just icing on the cake. Then he became a necessity. So what an incredible run they've had. What an incredible move they made late in the year. Same thing with Von Miller. But it seems like the Rams are like one of one, right? 31 other teams do it a different way. The Rams say, hey, screw these first couple rounds of picks. I want guys who've done it in the league, who fit our style personality-wise and have proven they can play at this level. I don't want to have to develop somebody. We'll do it a little bit on the back end of the draft. But I want guys who, who are known commodities. Bring those guys here. We'll go make a run at the Super Bowl. And it's their second one in four years. It's impressive. I think that's very well said, very well analyzed, um, almost as if you do this for a living. Uh, Mark, you, you talked about <laughs> Joe Burrow um, and, and obviously having a high level of success already in his second season, something that you know a great deal about. You mentioned uh, before we started recording, um, you saw my background and all the Cowboys stuff. I cover the Cowboys here at SB Nation. And you were a part of the Cowboys in 2016 during yep. Dak Prescott's rookie year. And I remember, and I feel like this isn't talked about enough, the, you know, and I don't want to speak for you or your relationship, but the mentorship role you had, um, I, I think a really powerful moment was when you guys played the Packers in the divisional round. Dak didn't even watch Dan Bailey's game-tying field goal. In fact, he, he just looked at you. Um, and and I, fe- I thought that was such a powerful connection and relationship that the two of you had. And I remember reading at the time that the, you spoke to Dak, and again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, about this, this type of success this early on is not normal. Um, you, you will experience – the NFL will bite back. Can you just kind of talk about that and, and where Dak is and where you've seen him kind of progress in his career? Yeah, I, I got to say I was so proud of him. And everywhere I went when I was no longer the starter and was helping a young guy, whether it was him or Trubisky or anybody else, I, you know, had a, you know, conversation right away just saying, hey, man, I got a ton of experience I know what I know. I'm happy to, to help you in any way I can. But if you're going to let me do that, I'm going to call out everything I see, whether it's bad body language, whether it's, you know, I'm going to challenge you verbally. I'm going to challenge you privately to get the best out of you. That's the only thing I know. If at any point you don't want this, totally understand you're not going to hurt my feelings. I've been around long enough. I know how it works. 
you just let me know. And Dak was a sponge, man. He wanted every bit of information. He wanted every film review. He wanted every film session. It was so fun to watch a guy that was so eager. And, you know, it's like a puppy with big paws. You know, you know, he's going to be big and coordinated in this big monster of a dog when he gets older and he's, and he's just a little puppy. He doesn't even realize it yet. And so it was, uh, I was so proud of him for that. What should have been a game winning field goal until Aaron Rodgers goes and makes that incredible third and long rollout to the left. I mean, I was, I don't know who was more crushed because I was just dying inside for Dak. Um, but you know, where he's at right now, he's exactly where he needs to be. I think he's playing so well. They're winning games because of him coming off of his gruesome injury signing the big deal, so much expectation, playing for America's team. I mean, it's a lot like playing in New York. And, and I thought that was a good fit for us early on because I could give him some of that perspective and, and remind him that you're going to get criticism. Whether it's fair or unfair, it's going to be there. So whatever you do, whatever, if you want to do a GQ shoot, if you want to do a commercial, if you want to, whatever it is, just understand it's coming what are you comfortable putting yourself out there with? What, what level of criticism are you comfortable with? Because you're going to get it on the football side no matter what, just by wearing the star on your helmet. Now, everything off the field, and we've had those discussions as well, and I thought he's handled that really well, whether it's, you know, Chunky Soup or all the ads he's done, the stuff he's done as an ambassador for mental health. I mean, that's the kind of guy he is. That speaks volumes about him as a person. Now, listen, they just – they were close against the 49ers. They kind of ran into a buzzsaw, it seemed like, and, and really just a sloppy game. Too many penalties. Um, that, that was the biggest thing that stood out to me, uh, other than, you know, building the stadium, uh, you know, east to west instead of <laughs> north and south because of the sun. That was crazy. When they showed that look on TV, I knew exactly what they were talking about because I remember being there for those afternoon games. And it's a pain in the butt when that sun's blaring in there. But um, I thought Dak is – I think he's navigating it well. And uh, he's, he's got all the scrutiny in the world on him, but uh, he handles it like a true pro and takes responsibility. And he's a heck of a player. He'll be just fine. That's well said, Mark. Uh, I thought the, the puppy thing was really precious, actually, the big pause. Uh, so uh, that was a really cool analogy. I'll steal that someday. Uh, Mark Sanchez, again, Fox NFL analyst working with Papa John's here. Make sure to use hashtag what's your style, hashtag sweepstakes for a chance to win free pizza for a year. Mark, help you enjoy your pizza on Super Bowl Sunday um, and you know, whenever else, whenever you got your pizza going on. Um, and appreciate you taking the time to join us here on the SB Nation NFL show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Mark for the time. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk with the absolute best person on the planet to explain what is going on with the Brian Flores lawsuit, what happens next, and how this thing could ultimately change the league. Welcome back to the SB Nation NFL show. I am super excited because there is no better person on the planet to talk to about everything happening with the Miami Dolphins and the Brian Flores lawsuit and the man that I am talking with right now, that is Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk, of Football Night in America. Mike, thanks for the time today. It's good to be with you, and I'm curious. I don't know where the dividing line is between excited and super excited. Is there vital signs that are checked? Is it a pulse thing, breathing yep. rate? I don't know. What makes someone super excited? I'm just curious about that. It's a it's a heart rate. I got a little bounce in my step right now. I'm not going to lie. Look, I don't get the chance to catch up with you that often now that we don't work together anymore. So when you come on, it's a big deal for me. I would assume that every other day is a big deal because you don't have to deal with me, but that works well, too. Well, the, so like when stuff like this happens, there are days where I'm like, man, I would love to be able to talk with Mike about this because you can break this down for everybody perfectly. You used to practice law and you, the best thing that you do is you get through the BS and tell people what's really going on. There are so many tentacles to this story. The first thing I think is like, what happens next procedurally? Well, with the Brian Flores lawsuit, look, the NFL will have an opportunity to respond. And the first thing the NFL will do, I am confident, is file a motion to dismiss the case or more specifically to compel arbitration of it. Because all of these coaching contracts contain language that require the coach to bring any grievances, any issues, any complaints, any claims in an arbitration that is ultimately resolved by drum roll please, the commissioner Ugh. or his designee. They stack the deck in their favor 
that way. So that's the first thing the NFL will try to do is take it out of court and into arbitration. And the problem for the rest of us is we don't get to learn things the same way that we would if this were a public court proceeding. A lot of things would be protected during the course of litigation, but when it's time to go to trial, you can't close the courtroom over this. Reporters would be allowed to attend, hear the evidence, see the documents, understand what actually is being claimed, how it's being claimed, and how it all happened. So I think the first step in all of this will be a battle over whether or not Brian Flores has an obligation to raise these claims in arbitration, which would unfold without us being able to understand exactly what's happening. The crazy thing for me is you have all these statements. I only read a couple of pages of, of the, the lawsuit that came out, and it, they have all these statements from Troy Vincent and people in the NFL admitting that something has to change with the hiring practices, that things are not right. All that stuff now can then seemingly be used against the NFL in this case. The hardest part about handling a case like this, and I handled many of these over the years when I was practicing law, you're never going to get a witness to climb onto the stand and have that Jack Nicholson moment in A Few Good Men when he says, you're damn right I did. You're never going to get direct evidence of discrimination. And if you ever do have direct evidence of discrimination, the case is going to settle long before it ever gets to trial. The cases that go to trial consist of the management employees who made the decisions about whether or not a person should be fired or not promoted or whatever, whatever causes the lawsuit. Those people are always going to say it had nothing to do with any legally protected characteristic, whether it's race, age, gender, national origin, anything protected by state, federal, or local law. They're always going to deny it. And people say, oh, though, they're going to go in and lie under oath. You don't understand. The lie is told months in advance when they lock in their story. All they're doing is repeating a story they have repeated over and over and over again. They're desensitized to the fact that they're lying about it, and they may actually think it's true. Sometimes it happens at a subconscious level. But when you have words directly from key executives that you can use, and the words from Troy Vincent are along the lines of, there is a double standard for Black coaches. The system is broken. That helps you lay the foundation. And the facts, the bare facts, the hiring facts, I've been saying this all week because when it's time to communicate to a jury, you got to be able to talk to them like we're talking now. You got to have a conversation to have with somebody on your front porch or waiting for the bus or hanging around the water cooler at work if they even have water coolers anymore, if they even have workplaces anymore. But what I would say to a jury is when you look at the hiring practices of the NFL, the number of black coaches that have been hired over the last 50 years, you take a coin and you flip it 500 times. And if it comes up heads 490 out of 500 times, there is something wrong with the coin. We don't need to test the metal. We don't need to break it down. We don't need to find exactly what it is that's wrong with the coin. We know there's something wrong with the coin. And Brian Flores, by taking on this lawsuit, is the first one to seize on this evidence that is out there in plain sight. See, I think the NFL never thought they'd have to deal with this because they never thought there would be a coach who was willing to trade his future career or the prospect that he won't have a future career. It's wrong if he's blackballed over this. It would be a separate violation of the law if he's retaliated against and not hired, not considered for future jobs. But, but still, it's always better to have a job than to be chasing an employer or a group of employers that are bound and determined not to give you that job. And you have a whole chapter in your book, Playmakers, which if you're watching on the YouTube page, you can see in the background there, comes out March 15th about the Rooney rule and how it's not really working. I feel like this story could be a whole other chapter in your book. Well, Playmakers is based on the last 20 years in the NFL, really up through early 2021. We reopened the book and did a John Gruden chapter in October and sealed it after that. I feel like you could do Playmakers too, based on everything that's happened in the last five months. And, and did you get a copy of the book yet? Is it arrived? It's supposed to be on the way and I'm so looking forward to it. I was going to give you a hard time for not having it displayed <laughs> behind you, but you have an excuse. If you don't actually possess a copy of the book, that is an acceptable excuse for not displaying a copy of the book. It will go up once I get it. Trust me. Well, I, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out where it's going to go. I'm going to take a picture of this frame okay. and I'm going to be very curious to see the next time where Playmakers is. I will have it prominently displayed. I cannot wait to read it. Uh, everybody should go and read it. There are so many good stories. You had the one. Go and buy uh, it. Go and buy it. 
I don't care if they read it. Okay. I just to buy the it. little nugget you released about Sean Payton and Anthony Davis and, and like that just blows me away. And I know there's going to be a ton more stuff in the book. So people should definitely do it. Um, my next question on this case is, do you think it's actually going to get to a trial? Because I thought like with the Colin Kaepernick case, it was like, okay, this is going now. He's not going to back down and we're going to find some stuff out. And then they settled and it all went away. What do you well, think happens with this? Remember the Colin Kaepernick case by rule under the operation of the collective bargaining agreement had to go to arbitration. There was never going to be a trial in open court. It's what I was talking about earlier. Ideally, we want to have access to these proceedings. We want to be able to show up and hear what's said. If Colin Kaepernick had not settled his claims against the NFL, that they colluded against him, that they agreed, that they operated in a way that essentially violates the antitrust laws. You have 32 different businesses coming together and agreeing not to employ someone. That would have played out in a private arbitration. We may have seen the ruling. Maybe somebody would have eventually acquired a copy of the transcript, but we wouldn't have been there to see it unfold. And that's what will happen with Flores if the NFL prevails on this threshold fight to send the case to arbitration. If it doesn't, there'll be a trial if the case doesn't settle or otherwise get thrown out. And what typically happens in a case like this, there's an early effort to throw it out or force arbitration. Then it goes to the discovery process where witnesses are questioned, documents are exchanged. That lasts nine months to a year, maybe longer if the case is more complicated. And because this case also has a class action component, there's a separate process of getting class certification that either fails or succeeds. And if it fails, Brian Flores still has his case. And there could be other coaches who decide to walk arm in arm with Brian Flores and join the effort. His lawyer yesterday, appearing, I think on CNN, suggested that other coaches will join up. But at some point, at some point, there will be an effort, they call it a motion for summary judgment, where the defendant tries to say there's no need for a trial. Based upon everything we've developed during the discovery process, there's no reason for a jury to be impaneled to decide who said what to whom and when. There's, even if we accept the evidence that we've developed in the light most favorable to the plaintiff, we win based on application of the law. That happens in 99.999% out of 100 of these cases involving employment discrimination. Once you clear that, then you have your opportunity to go to trial. That's months, if not years down the road. The St. Louis litigation that was settled in November was hanging around for seven years, I believe. Wow. Six or seven years before it actually was settled. And there's always that specter of settlement. And by the time the NFL gets to the point where it knows it is facing a public trial, especially if it would be a trial in open court that reporters could attend and all this stuff could come out and you put these witnesses on the stand who are owners, who are not going to be very good witnesses. You parade them in one after another, like the Seinfeld finale. That's when it gets very ugly and nasty for the NFL. That's why I think they settled the St. Louis case. The question is, would Brian Flores, if it goes that long and gets to that point, would he take a settlement or would he say, I don't want your money. I want your accountability easy to say if you don't have a pile of money sitting on the table at a certain point they make you an offer you can't refuse and that may be what the nfl has to ultimately do with brian flores to avoid a public record let's say he doesn't do that let's say he decides i'm not going to take the money what do you think will come out of this because even the the list of things that he's asking for i feel like are very hard to implement and very hard to kind of maintain and, and oversee I think a lot of the stuff he's looking for is, is really aimed at us. You know, when, when lawsuits get written and drafted and filed, a lot of the stuff that gets put in there is for the benefit of the media. And when you go to court, there's two different types of relief you can seek. You can seek legal relief, which is a requirement that the defendant write you a check. It's money changing hands. And then there's equitable relief where you ask the court to find that the other side must do something. You know, my neighbor built a fence that is a foot onto my side of the property, force my neighbor to tear his fence down. That's equitable relief. That is a court order saying someone must do something or someone must refrain from doing something. So some of these things, we'll see. If, if Brian Flores wins and he proves discrimination, it's up to the judge to decide how far he or she wants to go with an order saying this is what the NFL must do. But, but those things that Brian Flores is asking for 
could become the components of a settlement offer. And, you know, it's, it's a lot easier sometimes to do things than to pay someone money. It's a lot cheaper to agree to things that you otherwise maybe should do anyway. So I, I think that it's way too early to begin to speculate on whether or not there would be a final court order that these things need to be done. But these things become part of the discussion, maybe part of the settlement negotiations, and maybe if there is a resolution without a full-blown trial and further hearings by a court to decide whether or not to mandate those steps, maybe there's an agreement among the parties that those steps will be implemented. Maybe the NFL should just do it anyway. Maybe there's some good stuff in there that the NFL would be wise to do. Does he have to win in order for real change to happen in the league? No, no. I don't think he has to win. I... I concluded the Rooney Rule chapter in Playmakers by saying, basically, look, the Rooney Rule doesn't work. The Rooney Rule was adopted under the threat of litigation from Cyrus Mary and Johnny Cochran, the O.J. Simpson lawyer. Johnny Cochran is since deceased, but they made the league believe they were going to file a lawsuit on behalf of, of someone. I don't know who, but someone who was willing to trade his career in 2002 to affect this kind of change. And they were placated by the adoption of a requirement that every head coaching vacancy include at least one minority candidate being interviewed. And here we are 20 years later, and what's it really done? And there's been so many exceptions that teams have taken advantage of. You know, Jerry Jones early on wanted to hire Bill Parcells, so he made a phone call to Dennis Green, a phone call. And the NFL said, well, okay, you know, you got to do face-to-face interviews. And the NFL has chased some of these teams around as they've found ways to exploit loopholes in the rule. But now, and my point was at the end of the Playmakers Rooney Rule chapter, only the credible threat of litigation or actual litigation will get them to change. So they could win this, but they could still come out of it saying, we dodged that bullet. We may not dodge the next one. We'd better change our ways. But this is the more fundamental problem stats. And I just wrote something about this before coming down here to do this. And this is something we've been talking about on PFT Live the past couple of days. At the end of the day, These billion-dollar football organizations are owned by oligarchs who treat them like monarchies. And you've got a lot of people who are in these positions of power and influence and extreme wealth who are going to do what they want to do. And even if the league is trying to tell them, you can't do that, you shouldn't do that. If Troy Vincent is saying to them at these meetings, this is a broken system, there is a double standard, you've got to change this, they're still not going to do it. And I think at some point, whether it's the Washington football team toxic workplace and how that was allowed to exist, and there was inadequate human resources, personnel available to field complaints and act on complaints, whether it's the systemic racism we've seen when it comes to the hiring of black head coaches and black general managers, or whether it's this this notion that Brian Flores was allegedly offered $100,000 to lose games because the owner wanted the first pick in the draft. How do I get the first pick in the draft? I lose as many games as I can. How do I do it? Well, if my coach isn't going to do it willingly, I'll offer him $100,000 for every game he loses, allegedly. I think that the NFL would be better served in the future if it changes the rules to allow teams to become corporations like the Packers are, but real corporations, not fake certificate that you put on the wall and you can't resell it and it doesn't appreciate in value. I'm talking about a team like the Broncos. Instead of selling the Broncos to the highest bidder who's going to pay $4 billion or more for the team, do an initial public offering of shares of Denver Broncos Incorporated and let the shares be publicly traded. And then with a corporation, you're going to have a board of directors that can be made up of a diverse cross-section of the Denver community. You can have layers and levels of of corporate governance with officers and committees. And and even though corporations are far from immune (laughs) from this concept of violating the law, there's real accountability if it happens. You see change. CNN's president, Jeff Zucker, he, look, if, 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 if an owner of an NFL team did what Jeff Zucker did to cause him to walk away, that owner isn't walking away, unless, the other person in the alleged relationship goes public with it. Right. It's so much harder to brush things under the rug with the corporation where there's a greater degree of transparency and openness. That may be the way to solve these problems. And the NFL is not going to go easily into that type of an existence. There's a reason why these are all multi-billion dollar teams owned by the richest of the rich people. That's the way they like it. And that's probably the way they want to keep it. 
and really what the NFL is probably going to do, right? They're going to do the thing that looks the best from a PR standpoint that costs the least amount of money. Or just issue statements like Brian Flores' claims are without merit. That was astounding. Peter King did a great <laughs> job at noticing that right out of the gates. How in the world can you say that the claims are without merit when you just opened the envelope <laughs> and read the lawsuit? And then, and then a day later, when this notion that Stephen Ross may have violated the Federal Sports Bribery Act and could be subject to prosecution and imprisonment of up to five years, then all of a sudden, well, we're investigating. We're investigating this. Well, I thought you said his claims don't have merit. Right. <laughs> You've already decided. Investigate. Do you want to just make sure they don't have merit? Do you want to see how little merit they have? So this is a problem. When Ross issued his statement last night, very strongly worded, it tells me he's cornered, he's feeling wounded, and he's concerned. And when NFL Network went public with a right. report that there's a witness, Ross owns NFL Network <laughs> along with the other 31 owners. You know how I feel about that. I was amazed. I, I wonder whether or not the people at NFL Network did the mental gymnastics and understood that they were <laughs> jumping on a third rail or whether they just kind of did it and then realized after the fact, uh-oh, this may be a problem. And you have been saying for years that as the NFL gets involved with gambling, that if they have any kind of problems, they need to watch out for congressional involvement. And that's something that they want to avoid. And what was it? Two days after this story broke, we already got news that they, they want to have hearings. Well, and it's not just congressional involvement. It's worrying about prosecutorial involvement. There is a broad swath of discretion that prosecutors have. And the easier a case is to prove, the more likely a prosecutor is to take it on. So it's one thing for Brian Flores to say, he offered me $100,000 for each game we lost. And Stephen Ross to say, no, I didn't. When you have a witness, and for now the person is unnamed, but if the crap hits the fan, they'll find out who this person is. And maybe there's more than one person. The more people who are siding with Brian Flores, the easier it is to satisfy that very high bar of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. There's a chance it may fit if you have enough evidence. That's what they also need to be worried about. And with legalized gambling, there are so many different things that I think the NFL is blind to. And the final section of Playmakers focuses on the issues the NFL needs to be concerned about in the future, whether it's people who may be inclined to fix games. And I viewed it from a Tim Donahue perspective, fixing games directly because of gambling interests, not fixing games for unrelated reasons, but in a gambling environment, you step into a pile of crap if you do that, beyond the fact that you may violate federal law. But the, the handling of inside information, who's injured, who's not injured, game plans. You know, I had a coach say to me, what happens if I have on the whiteboard my first 15 plays that are scripted out for this weekend's game and janitor comes in and sees it and takes a picture of it and sees that 10 of the first 15 plays are going to get the ball in the hands of our running back and that information gets used on one of these prop bets right or for daily fantasy where the money is more and more significant all the time so there's a lot of things the nfl needs to be concerned about but they need to have the imagination the creativity and the foresight to recognize how this can blow up in their faces Apart from the legal side of this, just from a football standpoint, is Stephen Ross like looking at he if if they can prove this? I mean, he can't own the team, right? We're looking at Ross losing his ownership, possible penalties to the Dolphins. What do you think will happen from a just a football standpoint to Miami and the Giants? If this is proven, if if the tanking part of it is proven as it relates to the Dolphins, I think Stephen Ross must sell the team, and he already has one of his minority partners. Who, who owns, you know, a percentage of the team. And I think there's a plan, a transition plan when Ross is done owning the team, either because he's decided he's done or he's no longer alive. And, and again, he's in his 80s. So th this plan is going to come into fruition at some point. I think he has to tap out. I think he has to walk away. With the Giants and the Broncos, who are also named defendants in this lawsuit, if there is a finding that they engaged in sham interviews, that they put the cart before the horse, that they really weren't serious about Brian Flores, and that becomes further evidence of racial bias. I, I think there would be penalties. There would be significant sanctions. I don't think we're looking at transfers of ownership over it, but it would be a serious problem for the teams involved and a serious problem for the NFL. I just want to see that they're taking it seriously. When I see a statement that overstates their credentials when it comes to workplace diversity and concludes by saying the claims are without merit, 
That tells me not that they're taking it seriously. That tells me that they're circling the wagons and they're getting ready to fight. And that's what Brian Flores has to be ready for. I always told my potential clients when it was time to decide whether or not to go forward, ask yourself two questions. One, what's the worst thing about yourself that you don't want other people to find out about? Two, assume other people are going to find out about it. And are you comfortable with that happening? And if the answer to number two is no, then we can't go forward. So Flores has to be ready for them to delve into every nook and cranny of his life under the guise that this is legitimate discovery efforts just to make it unpalatable, embarrassing, and ultimately soften him up to either walk away or take whatever they put on the table. See, this is why everybody needs to go out, buy playmakers. You get the explanation for the who, the how, and how the sausage gets made, basically. Mike, thank you very much for the time. I appreciate the breakdown, and hopefully we talk again soon. All right, thanks, Stats. Good talking to you, pal. That was Mike Florio of ProFootballTalk.com. One last interview before we go. Mark Schlereth of Fox Sports made a little bit of news last year during the Aaron Rodgers trade talk because he said a deal was basically done with the Denver Broncos. I talked to Mark this week and asked him about that and about the possibility of a Rodgers to Denver deal this year. Very excited to bring in someone that I've had the privilege of knowing for a long time. We go way back at our years at ESPN in Bristol, Connecticut. Three-time Super Bowl champion, Mark Schlereth. Mark, how you doing, man? Stats, I'm doing great, man. Always great to hear your voice. Always great to see, to see you. I don't, I, I, you know, it usually is this time of year, once a year at Super Bowl that we get to see each other. Uh, but uh, always great to catch up, my friend. Now, I have a lot I want to get to, but I did notice that you and Bengals fans kind of had, you know, a little bit of a thing this season that started after the draft. And now, of course, they're all taking their victory lap. I just want to know, like, are you and and Bengals fans cool now? I Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that we're cool. You know, I learned a valuable lesson um, in my never-ending quest to troll different fan bases. (laughs) Uh, And, and, I was getting so much, um, you know, so much grief from Bengal fans. Um, and instead of just responding to a certain few, because the, I wasn't apparently giving them enough love or whatever. And it's funny stats, you know, when you're a studio analyst, you kind of try to watch everything every week and you try to, you know, have a take on every team. When you're a game analyst, as I am for Fox now, I dude, I'm, I'm spending 50 hours a week prepping the game that I have. Right. And so if you don't get Cincinnati on the schedule, you don't really see them very often. I actually saw them because I was doing a Baltimore game. So they were one of my three game breakdowns when I was covering the Baltimore Ravens. So I had seen them and and seen some of the dynamic nature of their offense. But part of it was in that, in the particular game I was watching, it was a 1770 ball game in the third quarter. It was a, a slugfest. And then all of a sudden, you know, they throw a slant to Jamar Chase and he takes it 80 some odd yards and they throw a bubble screen and go to Uzama. They're tied in and he takes it 45 yards for a touchdown. Like it was busted coverages. It was missed tackles. It was so it wasn't like, oh, man, Cincinnati's just beating the tar out of these guys. It was <laughs> it was different, you know. And so I was like, oh, all right, whatever. So I wasn't giving them enough credit. And I was just like, instead of just responding to the individuals that were giving me grief, I responded to the Cincinnati Bengals fan base. (laughs) And so then it was like, I just attacked the Bengals out of nowhere because they didn't have, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, there wasn't a long thread. It was just me going, Hey, Bengal fans, you ain't won Jack yet. So get off my kit, you know? And then it's become, it's become a real thing, which is, yeah, I personally, I use Twitter like my own personal locker room. Like, if you can't handle the heat, man, don't don't come in the locker room. That's how locker rooms work. So, um, yeah, it's been fun. I've, I've had a good time uh, trolling the Bengal fans. Well, I mean, the reality is you were right. I and mean, they hadn't won a playoff game since, what was it, 1991? There yes. Was a running joke that there had never been a text message sent about a Bengals playoff victory. Right, yeah. So, I mean, this is completely out of the picture nobody saw this coming uh and i think the biggest reason for it stink is i think joe burrow is he's a badass frankly and you would know you played with john elway who was among in terms of just guys that could just go out there and flat get it done i mean john elway is second to none burrow kind of strikes me in the same way that he has some of that kind of moxie in him that he's like hey 
We're going to do this. I don't care if I have to drag you with me. We're going to find a way to get it done. Yeah, he has been like, like I think one of the hard things, for, and it's, it's still really hard for me to wrap my head around Cincinnati's in the, in the Super Bowl. That's that's a really hard thing for me to wrap my head around. Um, and, and a lot of it goes back to my playing career. Like, you know, death, taxes, and Cincinnati will suck. Those are three <laughs> guarantees in life. And, you know, we used to joke around all the time. We'd go to, you'd go to play Cincinnati in my playing days, and you'd get the game day program, right? Every guy had a game day program in his locker. You know, the ones you get at the game now, and you flip through them, and it has the rosters and everything. And we always joke around because we'd be looking at the roster of the Bengals back in the day, and they'd have more first-rounders. They would have, like, seven of their defensive starters were all first-round draft picks. They Like, they had more first-round talent than any team that you ever faced, and they stunk. Like, they, they were awful, right? And you're like, damn, how do you have this much first-round talent and you still stink? And it was like a running joke. On, on, on the two teams, Washington and Denver, that I played with. It was like a running joke. Um, and the bottom line, so it's hard to get out of that, but you're 100% right about Joe Burrow. That dude is all balls, man. Uh, watching him play, like your ability to get sacked nine times and not be skittish, your ability to have, have that kind of pressure and still make a throw, you know, on a seven route to the sideline and throw it perfectly to really secure the game against the Tennessee Titans. Like, I don't – like, that's not normal. That's not human. To have that kind of – that kind of almost I don't give a crap attitude, like I can still play. And let's face it, I mean, in the AFC Championship game, especially in the second half, there were probably four or five times he was dead to rights where somebody like Chris Jones or somebody had their arms wrapped around him and somehow – he got out and either made a beautiful throw or scrambled for a first down and kept the drive alive. He did it three or four times, like essentially to me, keeping drives alive and giving them an opportunity to score on those drives and, and eventually winning that football game 27-24. So, like, I have nothing but the utmost respect for Joe Burrow and what he has meant and what he has brought kind of just from a – believability and, and just swagger standpoint for the Bengals. It's sort of a weird thing because what you were saying after the draft and what a lot of people were saying, I said the same thing. Joe Burrow's going to get killed. Why are they taking a wide receiver? He's never going to be able to get the ball to them. Right. And the, the truth is like, we were right. He did get killed. He got sacked a ton during the regular season and most, in the playoffs. Most sack quarterback, most sack quarterback in the league, over 50 sacks, by the way, and let me interrupt you for one second. You can go back. But in that Tennessee game, nine sacks in that Tennessee game, stats in 1991, I just had a 30-year reunion of Super Bowl 26. And Joe Gibbs was on the reunion call, you know, big Zoom call. There's probably 30 of us on the call. And Joe Gibbs goes, it was right after that game, goes, how in the world do you win that game? We had Mark Griffin <laughs> as our quarterback, who was a statue. In 19 games on the way to a world championship, we gave up a total of nine sacks on the season. The season. They gave up nine sacks in a game and won. I, like, I don't know. I don't know how you do that. I really don't. And that's a testament to Joe Burrow. But go ahead. Well, no, no. Now I got to find out about this Zoom call. So you're, you're on the Zoom call and you guys are talking about the games that are going on? Yeah, we were, it, was a, it was to celebrate... Super Bowl 26, that victory. And uh, and like I said, Charlie Cassidy was on. Joe Gibbs was on. You know, uh, Gary Clark was on the call. Joe Jacoby was on the call. Charles Mann was on the call. There, they, and Brian Mitchell was on the call. There were just a bunch of, of uh, my former teammates, uh, Donnie Warren. And there were a lot of guys on the call, probably 20, 30 guys. And it was so much fun just to kind of reminisce and, and talk. But, yeah, we talked about – I mean, it was – you know, we're just talking about not only that game, but what's going on in the NFL right now. We're talking about the playoffs. Um, we're just kind of catching up. We were probably on that Zoom call. I finally had to leave. It was still going on after about an hour and 45 because I have a, a standing date with my granddaughters. I take them to Taekwondo every uh, every Monday and Wednesday. And I watch them do their little Taekwondo stuff. And, uh, and then I make up – because they don't know. They don't know about Karate Kid. And so then I make up that I uh, am a, a master 
at Cobra Kai. And that's what I studied. So they think that, like, they think the whole Cobra Kai thing is something that I created, some oh, nice. karate that I created. And uh, and I don't think it's time. They're nine and, and five. I don't think it's time for me to actually let them know the truth, that I have nothing to do with it. They think I'm some type of karate uh, like master. And, um, and that at some point, I'm going to walk into their Taekwondo class and dispense some justice. So they, they're they never quite sure what I might do as I'm watching <laughs> them. And I was like, mm. you know, that dude that you guys coach, that, that is your your sensei or your your dojo master or whatever he is, like uh, I might come, I might grab one of my black belts and show him some <laughs> Popo guy and, and Popo, they call me Popo. I say Popo might uh, open a can on this dude. Like, you can't do that, Popo. You can't, well, you know, I'm an expert. So yeah, I, uh, yeah, my lying to my granddaughters, yes. But I think for me, it's more, it's entertaining enough. They'll forgive me uh, later on in life. That's a risky game because the longer yeah. you wait, the more training they get and the revenge that they exact on you could be harsher. It's a good point. That is it. That is, yeah, that is a good point. And we all know based on my, uh, based on uh, my career and uh, my injury history that they can both outrun me at nine and five right now. So it's not like I'm getting away. Mm, that's difficult. All right. Well, I know you got a lot going on. You're here uh, talking with me on behalf of Hydroxica. What is happening with that? Well, there's a, there's going to be kind of a cool workout uh, on uh, you know on uh, February 12th. So uh, live from LA downtown at Central or excuse me Grand Park downtown LA, uh, 11:30 12:30. We're going to do this whole fitness workout and uh, you know the second biggest consumption day in 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 in, uh, in of the year is. Uh, Super Bowl Sunday. So uh, over 1.4 billion uh, wings, uh, 50 million uh, cases of, uh, of beer. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal, right? So it's all about fitness. It's about health. It's about uh, wellness. It's about increasing your energy. It's all brought to you by um, my friends at HydroxyCut. And I'm going to be out there. Uh, it's 90s themed. So I'll probably have leg warmer stats and, go ahead <laughs> and, and, and I'll be going to town. There's also an opportunity uh, for uh, the big game sweepstakes, you can win up to $100,000 if a big guy scores a touchdown, offensive lineman, defensive lineman. It happened in Super Bowl 50. I think it was Malik Jackson who scored the touchdown after a strip sack by uh, Vaughn Miller. So that could be part of it. Also, uh, uh, groceries for a year, uh, gym memberships, all kinds. You can go to hydroxycut.com, find out more information about that. It's really about fitness. It's about exercise, it's about diet. It's about supplementation with uh, Hydroxycut. So you can check all that out on their social media feeds, Twitter, uh, Facebook. Uh, you can find them on uh, Instagram as well. That's pretty interesting in a Super Bowl that has Von Miller and Aaron Donald. Like Defensive line touchdowns is not out of the question by any means. Yeah, there's – hey, man, there is – there's no question. And I don't know – like, I don't know. Earlier in the season, the Rams used some two uh, – you know, so a six offensive line personnel – Groupings uh, and bringing in an extra offensive lineman as as a as a you know as a tight end down on the goal line. Um, I haven't seen it recently, but I haven't done any games. I haven't done any Rams games since probably week 11, 10 or eleven. So uh, yeah, you never know. You know, it's in every. I guarantee you this: it's in everybody's. It's in everybody's overall package, game plan package. It's just whether or not you want to execute. But I feel like there was thirteen. There's thirteen big guys touchdowns this year. On the season, wow, which is it was surprising. A bunch of offensive linemen. Uh, Andrew Thomas of the Giants scored. Lane Johnson scored. A couple other offensive linemen scored touchdowns this year. Uh, like you mentioned, defensive linemen. I could see it. You know, somebody catch one. Hell, there was a defensive lineman last week. Was it DJ Reader that caught? Uh, they intercepted. Uh, uh, oh no, no, yeah, Mahomes, right? Yeah, I think so. so. Yeah. So anyhow, you never know. I mean, it could. It certainly could happen. Let me branch out a little bit and ask you a couple questions away from the Super Bowl, because I know you're a Denver guy. You host a radio show in Denver. The Broncos organization ownership could be changing hands there. First of all, I just want to know, are you finally going to, you know, spend some of that stinking green chili money and become a part owner of the Broncos? Yeah, I, I, I might be able to get uh, like point zero 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 nine percent ownership uh we know and we've seen it with owners that think that they're they they have the money to buy a team all of a sudden become you know experts in personnel like give me a break 
uh, you know, Dan Snyder's of the world. Um, I had a coach tell me that the owner gave them scouting reports. <laughs> like, and they're like, are you, you're kidding me, right? Like, that I'm getting it. Yeah. I think this guy's got good hip, man, and he needs to stay a little bit lower That's on awesome. like, are you? Yeah. It's an owner. Like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, dude, how about Michael Dean Perry used to say this to us all the time. Owners own, players play, coaches coach. Let's don't get it twisted. Owners, <laughs> you sign checks, right? That's your job. Coaches, you put us in position. Players, you go out and get it done. And as easy as that formula sounds, it's really hard for a lot of owners not to uh, not to overstep kind of what their real role is in, in owning a football team. Well, and I think ownership now is extremely under the microscope with this Brian Flores situation and all the allegations in Miami that that the owner Stephen Ross allegedly offered him a hundred grand for every loss, which is just yeah. unbelievable. Hugh Jackson now has started to say that you know he's got evidence that said Jimmy Haslam was, was kind of directing him to do the same thing. I mean, ownership matters. I, I, when I heard that story, part of me couldn't believe it. And part of me was like, yeah, maybe I could see that happening. Do you think that that's possible that that could have taken place in the NFL? Absolutely. Um, now, frankly, I think Brian Flores um, has too much integrity to accept that from his owner. But it, it, it like that's the part that pissed me off more than anything else. And I've I've had a chance to do a couple of Miami games. Uh, I've had a chance to to talk to Brian Flores on, on multiple occasions, and um, that irritated me. It, it irritated me that an owner, uh, if it is in fact true, and I don't know that you have, I don't know the evidence that you have, but if it's if they prove that, if that proves out to be true, and you have evidence of that, then. To me, it's a privilege to coach in this league, a privilege to play in this league. Um, it, it needs to be a privilege to own in this league. And if that, in fact, is true, then you should never be allowed to you – sh you should be forced. The other owners, the other 31 owners should, should push you out. You, you should not be allowed to own a football team if that is, in fact, true. Now, that I, I think the, the onus of, of proof lies on Brian Flores and, and his team. Because at this point, you know, we have a lot of he said, he said type of stuff, except for the text message exchange, you know, with with Bill Besser. But, but think about that. Like I was talking to a buddy of mine today and, and he said this. It's it's very much like golf. There's always a leader in the clubhouse until somebody comes and takes the lead from said leader in the clubhouse. So if you got some information from somebody with the New York Giants, and of course, Bill Belichick is totally connected, but said, hey, Brian Dable, I think is our guy. At, at this particular point in time, he's the leader of the clubhouse, but it doesn't mean we're through the process yet, but it looks like he's going to be our guy. Right. And, and you've already, and you've already gone through the process of interviewing Leslie Frazier and interviewing some other, like, did you comply? Were you complicit uh, with the Rooney rule and all those things? And, and if you were, then, you know, I, I don't know. I just think that I, I hope, I hope, and I do. I think there is. Do I think there's an issue here? Yes. Do I think that all teams take that seriously? No. And, and so that part needs to be rectified. That, that something else has to happen because obviously, just the Rooney Rule in and of itself is not enough. It hasn't been enough. I mean, we've got one black coach in the National Football League in Mike Tomlin. So I, I get that. I get the frustration. I get the anger. So now I say, okay, well, what are the answers then? And, and one of the things that I think is pretty simple stats is, you know, this mad rush to fire everybody Monday after the season ends. And then this mad rush to go through your interview process and the pressure of going, man, we really like so-and-so, but so do three other teams. And we don't want to lose the opportunity for that guy. So, you know, to me, it would be pretty simple to say, hey, man, you can't interview anybody until after the Super Bowl. Yeah. And now we're going to push the offseason back. So we've got a three-week window to take care of your interviews. And at this date, you can hire a coach. So now I know, you know, now I know, hey, man, I don't have to hurry up and hire somebody without doing proper interviews. I can allow myself to be blown away. You, you know that it was a foregone conclusion when Mike Tomlin was hired in Pittsburgh that it was either going to be Ken Wisenhunt or Russ Grimm. 
two Pittsburgh guys. Wisnant was the OC. Yep. Russ Grimm was the assistant head coach, O-line coach. And I had on pretty good information that Russ Grimm had told his family, hey, man, I'm going to be the – they're going to give this to me after Cower. And then they did their due diligence. They brought in Tomlin. And Tomlin, they, they had him there for eight hours. They He blew them away. And I met with Tomlin this year. And I was I walked out of that meeting saying to myself – if that dude wasn't a head football coach in the NFL, he'd be a, he'd be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. It's one of the most amazing meetings I've ever had. <laughs> the dude just he just blows you with knowledge, ability to articulate, you know what he wants articulated. His just overall like give you the game plan. I want you guys to be successful. I want this to be a great partnership. And I've been going through it, and I was just blown away. And I'm like, that's why he became the head coach. That process oftentimes is not allowed to happen. Why? Because we're so worried about losing the potential of one guy because four teams are after him that we don't really do our due diligence on all the qualified candidates because we've already predetermined, uh-oh, you know. And, and, and so can't we just take that pressure off the teams? Can we move the senior bowl back? Can we move the – Start a free agency back. Can we move the draft back a little bit? I mean, we already basically quit training together and, and you know, the OTAs and shut down the facilities. So, so what? It starts a couple of weeks later. Who gives a rip? That, that at least, at least maybe it would facilitate a situation in which you were more thorough when it came to the, the potential of hiring. You allowed yourself the potential of somebody to come in there and knock the door down for you. The other part of that stink was there were some allegations in there about the Broncos and John Elway and how they handled their interview with Brian Flores. Uh, the, the Broncos, of course, denied this. Um, you obviously are close with the Broncos still. What is your reaction to all of that? Yeah, my, my reaction is, you know, I mean, the Broncos were, you know, came right out and, and uh, vehemently denied uh, those accusations um, again, you know, I'll say the same thing I say when it comes to, you know, issues throughout the NFL, when it comes to players issues, right? Usually, and you know, you've covered this league and followed this sport long enough where, where there's smoke, there's usually some fire. And, and, um, and, you know, I have, like, again, the onus of proof is on Brian Flores, and I know the Broncos have their meetings minute, their minutes and their meetings and, and all that stuff. And, you know, if you can produce video of a couple guys stumbling into a meeting with sunglasses on that look drunk, then, then you might have something. I don't know that you can produce that video. Um, so then it becomes the ultimate, you know, again, he said, she said type of thing. And, and like, that's not enough to stand up in court. Um, but, you know, I, I think there is, there's obviously there is evidence of, you know, quote unquote, token interviews, uh, systemic racism. Uh, if, if, like, I, I think there's evidence that, that there is, you know, I mean, just look at the surface. There's just, there's not enough diversity and there's not enough, uh, not enough guys getting legitimate opportunities. And so I think there's a problem. I think there definitely is a problem. Getting back more to the football side of things, I was convinced, and I'm blaming you for this, Stink, last uh, year that Aaron Rodgers was going to be a Denver Bronco. I, I, I distinctly remember a tweet from Mark Schlereth that was like, it's, we're on the one-yard line or something like that, and yeah. it's happening. It's, it's, it, I, I think the, the exact line was, it's as close to a done deal as possible. There we Obviously, go. Obviously, things could still fall through, but it's close. So same question this year. Is that still possible? I mean, they just hired Aaron Rodgers' yeah. favorite coordinator in the world. Oh, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any question that it's possible. Now, uh, the, the cards, the way it was explained to me, like Aaron Rodgers now holds the cards. So they redid his contract last year when they coached him to come back in. And basically they made his contract cost prohibitive for this year. He's under contract, but I believe the entirety of his contract is accounts against the cap, which is about $46 million. And so when you start thinking about, I'm not sure exactly what the overall cap number is going to be if it's been established, but let's call it $120 million. 
You know, if all of a sudden you're paying your star wide receiver who's under who's not under contract and you franchise him, that's going to be it. That's going to be at over 20, call it yep. 21, 22, Aaron at 26. Now you're talking about half of your salary cap, half to two players. Right? Like you, you can't you can't make that happen. So the way it was explained to me is that Aaron Rodgers can basically say the only way that Green Bay can keep Aaron Rodgers is if Aaron Rodgers agrees to restructure his deal, financially speaking. Right. And so you can get you could probably get, you know, a, a King's ransom for Aaron Rodgers right now. So do I think that that move is potentially on the table? Yes. Now, let me tell you this, too, Stas, because you'll find this interesting. So I got I'm not a reporter. Right. So I got on I got this piece of information and I was doing I was set to do, you know, a draft show on the radio station I'm on. Okay. So I get it, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, right? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sourcing it. I'm like, this is the greatest thing that I've ever heard. <laughs> so instantly, you know, on my mind, out my mouth, I'm already going, guys, guess what? <laughs> I think we're getting Aaron Rodgers, you know? And so then it just becomes this free-for-all, right? And I'm not even thinking about the potential consequences of, <laughs> you know, news breaking, right? I'm just excited that Aaron Rodgers – after the dreck I've seen play quarterback here in Denver since uh, since Peyton Manning retired, I'm just excited about the potential of Rogers being here. <laughs> well, of course, you know I'm I'm getting crushed. Well, we go to break stats, and my phone rings, and it's the Broncos. Now I've gotten plenty I've gotten plenty of calls from the Broncos over over the years, right? And a lot of times it's like, hey, let us give you the the skin. Let us give you the scoop on what's going on. Let us. Hey, what's being reported right now is not 100%. Like, mm-hmm. there's some other nuanced aspects. Let us give you the information. You, you do with it what you want. But this is from our perspective, and this has happened to me several times in regards to ownership, you know, and in regards to the potential lawsuits and things that have gone on between family members and, and this, that, and the other. Okay. So I get this phone call. It's the Broncos. We just, I mean, we go to break. No, sir. Do we say we sign off a break and my phone is ringing? <laughs> I'm like, Lord have mercy. All right. Hello. It wasn't stink. This is erroneous information. Stink. This is wrong. We haven't talked to the Green Bay Packers. We haven't had one conversation. No, it was, where did you hear this? Who is your source? Ah. Who is your source? How do you know? You're talking directly with Aaron, aren't you? So you were right. So, and and by the way, uh, Aaron then texted me too and said, hey, dude, Who's telling you this, right? So wow. So, yeah. So there's there's no question that they were in negotiations, that there were there was a a quote unquote deal in principle. Um, and then they they just couldn't consummate that deal, probably because they actually watched some film that Jordan loved and were like, there's no way we with the team that we have right now, there is no way we can go in the season with Jordan Love playing quarterback for us. Wow, that is a crazy. So you had both sides hitting you up, wanting to know who you were talking to. So if you weren't talking to Denver and you weren't talking to Aaron Rodgers, that's a hell of a source thing. Yeah, exactly. It, it was it was a a very solid source. There's no question. But you know, um, it didn't happen. And I think most NFL fans would be shocked how many times their favorite NFL player is discussed in a trade. Hell, there was a, a story just a couple of weeks ago that. Uh, um, that Mike Singletary nixed the trade for Ben Roethlisberger. After I am ben very aware of that. Yes. <laughs> that Ben Roethlisberger was on the blocks after he had his, his issues in Pittsburgh and, and, you know, was suspended and had his allegations and all that stuff um, that, uh, that Mike Singletary nixed that trade to the Niners. Yeah, that uh, that did cross my uh, Twitter the other day. And uh, yeah. let's just say, I mean, there's a whole parallel universe of NFL history that, would blow people's minds if we actually got to dive into it. But listen, I could take up all of your time if you'd let me, but I know you got a lot of these to do. I want to say thank you very much again, Mark Schlereth here for Hydroxycut. Uh, we really appreciate the time stink. I love talking with you and hopefully we can do it again soon. 
Anytime, Stats. Just hit me up, buddy. Thanks one more time to everyone for joining us here at the SB Nation NFL Show. Again, we are going to have some of the biggest names in the entire NFL join us all next week. So make sure you subscribe now. Do it, and you won't even have to remember to check back later. All this amazing content is going to come right to your phone like a football DoorDash. Enjoy your weekend, everybody. I'm Rob Stats Guerrera. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs. You might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features.